kids in foster care, they don't vote. They don't write big fat checks for rubber chicken political fundraising dinners. And so it's easy to talk the talk. Oh yeah, I want to fix this. Oh yeah, I care about children but then not do anything. And I think we've seen that administration after administration after administration. Hello, and welcome to the Cloudcast. I'm Ben Zielinski, and I will be your host this week. This week, I take a look at some of the news surrounding the Illinois Department of Children and Family Services. Last week, I spent some time talking with Cook County Public Guardian, Charles Golbert, about the problems DCFS has had placing children in appropriate care settings. Since the beginning of the year, DCFS Director Mark Smith has been found in contempt of court by Cook County Judge Patrick Murphy four times for failing to move children out of psychiatric hospitals and into foster care settings. Goldbert will tell us a little bit about these cases and why they are happening. He will also share some of the perspective with us on the history of bed and staffing shortages at DCFS, which goes back before the Pritzker administration. Then I will visit with Senator Steve McClure, who will spend some time telling us about the legislation moving through the General Assembly to better protect DCFS workers in the field. On January 4th, DCFS investigator Deidre Silas was stabbed to death at a home near Springfield. In 2017, DCFS investigator Pam Knight was beaten to death at a home in northern Illinois near Dixon. Lawmakers have so far been working on multiple bipartisan bills in an attempt to address employee safety as a result of these incidents. Now here is my interview with Cook County Public Guardian, Charles Goldberg. So DCF Director Mark Smith has been found in contempt of court four times this year by Cook County Judge Patrick Murphy for failing to properly place children in the agency's care. Can you tell us a little bit about how unprecedented this move is? Yeah, that's extremely unusual here in Illinois and actually anywhere in the country. If you look anywhere in the country, it's extremely rare for a judge to hold a state agency head in contempt of court and issue fines, it's it's extremely rare. And here we have a judge doing it four times in just six weeks. And that's really a testament to how um, DCFS's placement shortage has reached such a crisis, crisis level with hundreds of kids every year languishing in locked psychiatric hospitals, um, kids having to live in offices, um, it, it, it's become such a crisis level that a judge, it, it's, it's just extraordinary. It kind of seems like Judge Murphy feels the agency is actually being responsive to these charges, and it's essentially forcing them to place these children, and they'll actually do it because of these charges. Is that kind of what's going on here? Um, yes and no. It's getting the individual children placed, which is terrific. That's why my office filed the contempt of court citations in the first place. That's why we've been doing this. It has been getting these individual children placed. But at the end of the day, DCFS has a placement shortage of about 500 beds. Um, Seven years ago, DCFS made the decision. It was a a calculated decision that DCFS made to abolish 500 group home beds and residential home beds. And their theory was that they were going to replace those beds with therapeutic foster home beds. Um, But in its infinite lack of wisdom, DCFS abolished the group home beds and the residential home beds, um, and they've only created a few dozen of the therapeutic foster home beds. So we're short about 500 beds. So what we're really doing in terms of the bigger picture is we're playing musical chairs or musical beds, if you will. 
Um, the music stops. The kid with the contempt citation gets placed, but there are still 500 other children who are not placed. Um, like I said, just last year, 356 DCFS kids um, were warehoused in locked psychiatric hospitals for no reason other than that DCFS had nowhere um, to place them. Um, so at the big level, DCFS really needs to expand its placement capacity in a big way, and it needs to do so now. Yeah, who are these children exactly who have been able to get in front of the judge and have had their placement forced by by the judge by having these contempt charges? Is there anything that's different about these kids from all the other kids who are also awaiting placement, or is this mostly just chance? Um, it's partly chance. It's also partly there some of just the most uh, egregious of the cases. So, for example, um, the most recent, the fourth contempt finding, involved a 13-year-old girl uh, who DCFS moved 25 times in about six weeks. And before that series of moves, uh, this little girl was warehoused, DCFS warehoused her in a locked psychiatric hospital for nearly two months. Um, a 13-year-old girl with who, who really needs a, a loving home and appropriate um, placement, just really compelling um, case. Uh, another child with someone, uh, a, a, another contempt uh, citation we have pending right now is somebody who's been um, locked up in a psychiatric hospital for six months. They're, they're just really some of the most compelling um, of the cases. And we've been able to get these kids moved. Um, but again, until DCFS expands this placement capacity, there are always going to be other kids still in line for beds. So these kids end up in a psychiatric facility um, and they're there for months. They're not able to they're not able to leave, go outside or anything like that. It's basically like being hospitalized. Um, it's sort of a cross between being hospitalized and being incarcerated. So psychiatric hospitals are locked. They're locked. You cannot walk a hospital. You can walk out the door if you want. A psychiatric hospital, right. you cannot. You're locked up. Um, you're able to go outside about one hour a day. Um, after a certain point in time, they start giving you vitamin D supplements due to sun deprivation because you're locked indoors all day. There's um, no schooling to speak of. So if you're there for six months, you're going to lose a year of schooling. If you're there for two months, you're going to lose at least a semester, if not more, of schooling. Um, no activities, you know, no sports, no football team, no chess club, whatever activities that uh, children enjoy. Um, no recreation, very extremely limited ability to visit with family um, and, and your parents. Um, it's just, I mean, it's just, it's just horrible. It's for some, for somebody who's not experienced it, it's really difficult to conceive what it, the other thing is you see kids going through acute psychiatric episodes and kids go into the psychiatric hospital with with whatever behavioral issue they have. And during the months and months they're stuck there, they see, they learn other problematic um, behaviors. The other thing is they see psychiatric hospitalization is supposed to be very short term to address an acute psychiatric episode. Rule of thumb is rarely more than two weeks. So these DCFS kids, they see kids who have parents other than DCFS come in, get treated, and leave after a week or two weeks when they've been treated. And they see other kids with parents other than DCFS come in with whatever issue, stay a week or two weeks, be treated, get better, 
and then their parents pick them up and take them home. And to see this continue to happen to all the other patients except for you, because you have a horrible parents, um, it reinforces negative images of self-worth. You know, it's really hard to think of a better way to say to a child, you don't matter, than forcing that child to be locked up in a psychiatric ward for months on end for no reason other than that your guardian has nowhere to place you. It's just horrible. A lot of people are probably wondering if the agency can place the children after the court files charges against the agency, why can't they place children in a timely fashion? Tell us just a little bit more about the bed shortage and staffing issues that DCFS has is currently facing right now that's prohibiting them from being able to move children in a timely fashion. So DCFS has a shortage of at least 500 beds. So they have the 500 beds they eliminated seven years ago, very unwisely. Um, but even five years ago, they had a placement shortage. And DCFS also has about a thousand kids more than it did a few years ago. So they probably need in the neighborhood of six to 7,000 um, new beds. Uh, and they also have a, a personnel shortage. Um, part of it is because of COVID. Basically, all lots of organizations are having challenges hiring people right now. It's partly because of that. But their personnel shortage certainly predated COVID-19. Um, to give you an idea, there's a 30-year-old court order against DCFS known as BH. It's a comprehensive consent decree. It requires DCFS to have all the placement uh, all the beds it needs. Obviously, DCFS is in violation of that. It also requires certain caseload ratios for DCFS's investigators. DCFS is not in compliance with that. And just last year, DCFS asked the federal court for a three-year extension of time. So that will bring it to 2024 to come into compliance with the caseload standards that it promised in this consent decree 30 years ago. Um, so some of these problems have been exacerbated by COVID. All of them have been huge problems and predate COVID. It, it's an issue of resources and political will. And by the way, when I talk about resources, I mean resources only in the short term, not in the medium term or the long term. What do I mean by that? Um, addressing this problem will save the taxpayers millions and millions of dollars every year. And that's because psychiatric hospitalization it's the most expensive placement you can possibly put a child. It's far more expensive than foster care or therapeutic foster care or group homes, far more expensive. Um, the problem of children, of DCFS's children being warehoused in locked psych psychiatric hospitals, that costs the tax, that wastes about $6.2 million of taxpayer money every single year. And the other thing is that uh, group home beds, foster home beds, residential beds for foster children, the federal government reimburses DCFS at 50%, half, under its the Title IV-E program. The feds obviously will not reimburse DCFS for warehousing children in psychiatric wards. Um, so this problem is just devastating for the taxpayers. And if we take what we need to invest now in the placements that we need, it's a short-term investment of money, but it will reap millions and millions of saved tax dollars in the medium um, term and the long term every single year. DCFS has always been kind of this you know, political football in Illinois that it gets passed down from one 
administration to the next administration. And it seems like it's always a problem. And this goes back to several administrations before Governor Pritzker, before Governor Rauner. What's kind of just the, the history of DCFS and, and why has it been such a, a controversial agency in some ways that you know, everybody is constantly dealing with, with problems at the agency that you know politicians say need to be fixed, but little actually ends up being done to completely rectify the problems? So you're right. Um, this is a problem that has been um, gone back over multiple administrations, and it's it's just not acceptable. Um, at the end of the day, I feel it's because kids don't vote. Kids in foster care, they don't vote. They don't write big, fat checks for rubber chicken political fundraising dinners. Um, and so it's easy to talk the talk. Oh, yeah, I want to fix this. Oh, yeah, I care about children but then not do anything. And I think we've seen that administration after administration after administration. And this is not rocket science. The placements that we need, we know what they look like. In fact, we had them seven years ago, but DCFS made a decision to abolish them seven years ago. Um, So it's not rocket science. It's just political will. It's investment of resources in the short term that again, will actually save resources in the long term. Um, And, and why this continues to be a low priority administration after administration, I, I feel it's because these are um, voiceless uh, populations um, who don't vote, who don't write fat checks to politicians. What was kind of the rationale behind the decision to eliminate those beds seven years ago? So the theory, it was a great theory. Um, there's a, other jurisdictions have phased out group homes and residential facilities to less restrictive. They call them therapeutic foster homes. So what it is, is it's a foster home model. So a family, a house, a family, as opposed to staff in a more institutional type building. Um, and what you do is you take the services that are available in group homes and residential homes and you bring them into the foster home. Um, and everybody supported the idea to tra- to transition toward a therapeutic foster home model. I support that idea. Um, almost every advocate I know supports that. But the problem is you have to create the therapeutic foster home resources um, at the same time that you're phasing out the residential um, beds and the group home beds. But what DCFS did, they, they did it in the worst possible strategy seven years ago. They just shuttered. Uh, 500 group home beds and residential beds. Just precipitously, unwisely, they just close them. And over the whole seven years, they've only created about 30 therapeutic foster homes. And it turns out that these therapeutic foster homes were much more difficult to evolve than DCFS had realized because in Illinois, we have huge deserts of community-based services that these children need. Um, Counselors, uh, therapists, and so forth. And so you couldn't just abolish uh, the, the placements that existed and think magically you're going to have all these therapeutic foster homes. They, they, there was no strategy. There's no strategic thinking involved. There's no transition. There was no thoughtfulness. Um, and we've been, children have been paying the consequences for the past seven years. The governor's office says they're cleaning up the mess now that they inherited from previous administrations. And Governor Pritzker has given his vote of confidence to Director Smith. 
um, and says he's making good progress since he took office in 2019. What's your view on this progress or lack of progress? Uh, I don't see a lot of progress. I see a lot of talk, but I don't see a lot of progress. Um, I don't see any new placements. And in fact, they, they can point to a few dozen placements that have been created in the last three years, but they've lost about that many beds as well. Whenever any state official or DCFS bureaucrat tells you the number of new placements in X time frame, always the follow-up question has to be, well, how many placements did you lose in that same time frame? And the answer is that they've always lost about the same or even a little bit more. So I see talk. I do not see accomplishments. I do not see actions. Where are the requests for proposals? I've seen requests for proposals out for a few dozen beds. You can talk all you want, but I want to see the request for proposals. And I also want to see the dollars that are attached to them, because unless you accompany a request for a proposal for placements with the appropriate dollars to do it right, you're not going to get any responses. You're going to get responses that are junk. Um, so in terms of showing me these concrete things that we need, I just haven't seen it. Should the governor replace Director Smith? Um so uh, that's a very um, difficult question that, frankly, is above my pay grade. Um, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll, the, there are a few things on both sides. So on the one side, you have to look at results. You know, in the private sector, if there aren't results as opposed to talk, you know, real results, uh, there, there are consequences in leadership. Um, the other flip side of the argument is that DCFS went through a period before Director Smith, um, Director Smith is something like the 12th director or acting director in something like 10 years, or maybe it's 12 people in 15 right. years. I, I forget exactly, but basically there's a new director every single year for, for more than a decade. And that was, that was also horrible for children. Um, there was no continuity of leadership. There was no ability to have long-term strategy or long-term strategic thinking. Um, it, it, it was a mess. I mean, imagine the organization you work for. If a new leadership team was brought on every year for 10 years, probably would not work well for your organization. And it certainly was not working well for DCFS. Um, so there are points to be made on both sides. And I feel as though I kind of have to be Switzerland um, on on that issue. Yeah, it just seems, you know, in some ways, I guess you could say that Director Smith has been one of the the most stabilizing forces there that he's been there for the majority of the Pritzker administration. Um, he's been there a lot longer than previous directors. Is that basically something long-term you're looking for, whether it be this governor's administration, another governor's administration, somebody who's going to be able to create some sort of stabilization at DCFS so it's not constantly changing. So the employees and the children in care can have an idea of what to expect and can actually see progress being made that has not been made in the last decade because the boss has changed so often. Yeah, you want um, stable, long-term leadership. You want leadership with vision and that has the opportunity to carry out and fulfill that vision, but it has to be the right um, stable, long-term leadership with the vision and to carry out the vision. Um, so you, you, you really need both. And that balance is something that all organizations struggle with, not just DCFS. This is not anything unique to DCFS. Just what's unique to DCFS is that they're just such in horrible shape 
and there are such severe consequences to them doing a big job is what's different about this for DCFS. Now, what needs to be done to adequately staff the agency and ensure there are enough beds for kids? Obviously, this might start in the legislature with the appropriate appropriations. Uh, you know, what, what can lawmakers do to help the situation themselves? Yeah, so in the short term, DCFS definitely needs the resources to expand placement capacity. Um, and it, it, I do believe it needs to raise uh, salaries, uh, the scale for its workers. And these are short-term investments that have to be made in our children. Um, but again, in the medium and long term, we'll reap not just rewards for the children in terms of they'll get stable placements and be able to thrive, um, but these placements are less expensive than we're housing kids in emergency shelters and in psychiatric hospitals. You know, you know uh, 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 in terms of the expense, we talked a lot about the kids being warehoused in psychiatric hospitals. The other place that these kids are being warehoused are emergency shelters. They're designed um, to be, they're supposed to be very short-term placement while DCFS finds a longer-term placement. Rule of thumb is it should never be more than 30 days, but DCFS also has kids in these so-called temporary emergency shelters for months and months on end. Also a monumental waste of resources. One of the children involved where the judge made a finding of contempt of court against uh, Mark Smith, DCFS director, um, that child was not in a psychiatric hospital. That child was in supposedly a temporary shelter for several months. That shelter charges the taxpayers $9,700 a day. What the child needed, according to DCFS, um, was specialized foster care, which costs about $1,500 um, a month. Wait, did I say $9,700 a day? I meant $9,700 a month. The shelter costs $9,700 a month. Specialized foster care costs about $1,500 um, a month. So okay. all these Band-Aid things where, where children suffer um, cost the taxpayers so much money. Invest that money in the short term on hiring more staff. And if that means you need to increase salaries, do that. And in expanding placement capacity. And the rewards will reap in the medium and the long term. First of all, the, these types of placements are much less expensive than psychiatric hospitals and emergency shelters. But in addition, you'll have children thriving. You'll have children in school. You'll have children finishing school on time. Um, you'll, have fin you'll have children who are employable when they get out of DCFS. Um, instead of having lots of uh, psychiatric and emotional challenges because of everything they go through in DCFS. Um, you know, make these investments in our children. They're our future. They're all of our, DCFS's children are all of our children and they're our future. Um, and we, we need to invest in them and do right by them. What's next in Cook County Court? for this case, or all these cases, do you anticipate more contempt charges against the director? I do. There, there are more contempt petitions pending right now as we speak. Um, they're going to wind their way through the court. What happens is most of the contempt petitions, basically the day or the week before they're up for trial, um, DCFS finds a placement. Uh, it's really remarkable that the problem is so bad that four times in six weeks, even with the hammer of a contempt citation over DCFS's head, they couldn't find a placement in, in uh, for these four children. Um, so I, I suspect we'll probably continue to see more contempt findings against the director. 
Cook County Public Guardian, Charles Goldbert, thank you for coming on the Cloudcast and sharing your perspective on this very important issue. Hopefully we can see some sort of resolution that helps these kids soon. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Joining me now on the Cloudcast is Senator Steve McClure, a Springfield Republican. Senator, it's a little unfortunate that we are here today having these conversations about DCFS. On January 4th, DCFS investigator Idris uh, Silas uh, was stabbed to death at a home in Thayer, a town in your district in Sagamon County. How's the community been dealing with this tragedy? Well, it's just a horrible situation. And uh, the problem with a situation like that is that someone who is so young, you know, 36 years old, two small children, a husband, wonderful family, and uh, it's just hard for all those people that work with her to deal with her, to deal with it, what happened. It's hard for um, her family. And I, I, in fact, I spoke to her husband this morning. It's just difficult, but I think everybody's doing the best they can. So you're proposing legislation to try to give some sort of tool to DCF, DCFS workers in hopes of keeping them safer. Tell me a little bit about the bill you introduced a couple of weeks ago uh, to allow DCFS workers to carry pepper spray. Absolutely. So right now, anybody 18 or over can carry pepper spray with them in this state. And pepper spray is legal all over the country. And so the DCFS policy, however, for a few years has been that if you work for DCFS, you're not allowed to carry mace on you while you're working for DCFS. And we have an issue where these investigators like Deidre Silas can show up to a house and unexpectedly face a potentially life-threatening situation. And they're not allowed to basically defend themselves themselves at all. And so this would allow for investigators to carry mace. It would be at their discretion. They could choose to do it or not choose to do it. It's up to them. But if they choose to do it, they would have to take a course, uh, provide train provided by the Illinois State Police. Uh, because it's, it's not... It's one thing to have it on you. It's another to know how to use it properly and to use it in a life-threatening situation where you have very, very little time to react. And so this would make sure they're properly trained, would make sure they would be able to use it in a life-threatening situation quickly. And um, it's not mandatory. So uh, DCFS investigators can choose to take it with them or not. But if they choose to take it, they've got to have the training. So it's a, it's a bill that I believe will save someone's life uh, if it passes. And training's done by the state police? That's correct. And I've talked to, I've talked to the state police, and they said that if it, the bill passes, they will work with DCFS and be able to implement a program. They already train uh, officers in their academy with how to use mace and how to deal with mace if you're spraying it and, it, and some of it flies back into your face. So uh, they're already ready to, to do that. They would just need the bill to pass and uh, DCFS to work with them to be able to finish that. So what is the path through the General Assembly for this legislation? It has co-sponsors from both parties, but it was filed after the committee deadline. Where are we at right now on getting it onto the floor and getting it passed? That's correct. So uh, we added it as an amendment on a shell bill because it missed the normal deadlines. And the shell bill uh, has a deadline of tomorrow getting passed. And so thankfully yesterday, it was assigned to committee. And last night uh, we had a hearing and it passed the executive committee uh, unanimously. And so now hopefully we can vote on it uh, 
before the deadline tomorrow and get to the house. So why pepper spray? There's kind of the, the old saying, you know, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. You know, how would pepper spray keep somebody safe if they're attacked with a weapon, you know, and they're just completely mm-hmm. out, out forced? Well, in the case of Deidre, she was attacked by knife, with a knife. And um, in the last caseworker, excuse me, the last DCFS employee that was murdered was also attacked with by a person who was, uh, who did not have a gun. So these are both situations where when the person's approaching with the knife or trying to punch them or kick them or whatever, they've got the opportunity to get that mace out and spray them and potentially give them by themselves some time to, to escape. So, you know, these are not instances where someone had a gun and, and shot them from a distance. These are situations where these two women were, you know, brutally murdered. And uh, in situations like that, mace can or pepper spray can get a person off of them for enough time to escape. And that's just what we're trying to do. We're trying to buy them some time. And you've talked to some retired DCFS employees when you introduce this bill. How do they and other current employees of the department feel about the need to do this? What are you hearing from people who would be able to carry this pepper spray? They think it's important. They think it's an important bill. And um, they believe that more needs to be done than just this bill. And I agree with that. However, you know, if we can get this passed, it's a start. And in fact, one of the messages I received from um, a former DCFS employee after the bill was filed uh, indicated that they personally were involved in an incident when DCFS still allowed mace um, and that mace saved someone's life. And so there's already documented instances, at least one in the in DCFS's past where when mace was allowed, um, it saved somebody's life. And I, I would suspect that, you know, in the future, this could save people's lives. Now, ASPE is fully supportive. You're talking about current employees. ASPE is fully supportive. Mm-hmm. And this idea itself came from discussions with uh, DCFS employees, current and former employees. And so this is a bill really that um, that is designed to be for the, for, the, for the people that it's meant to protect. And so it's one of those circumstances where uh, we've got a lot of people that are passionate about it. And, you know, on very short notice yesterday, we were able to get two of them, two former DCFS employees to, to be ready to testify. And they did a fantastic job. So a lot of tremendous support. Uh, but everyone knows that this is not the, o- the only thing that needs to be done um, for the safety of the DCFS employees. But it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, as you kind of mentioned there, one bill is not going to solve all the problems that DCFS faces and keep workers completely safe. There are other proposals out there related to DCFS worker safety. Senator Maddie Hunter, a Chicago Democrat, has a bill that would create a DCFS security force, and you're also a co-sponsor on that bill. Tell me a little bit about why you think this is a possible solution as well. Here's the thing. Right now, many people would like for law enforcement to go to every home visit that a DCFS employee makes. But in the rural parts of the counties that I represent, in the rural parts of this state, and in other bigger cities, quite frankly, where they're having a shortage of, of law enforcement uh, folks available, there just aren't the resources to do that. You know, in, in, some, in some places in counties I represent, 
you know, if you call 911 and um, the moment that they receive the phone call and a officer goes to your house, it could take them 25 minutes to get there just because of the the size of these counties and, and the fact that we're um, certainly needing law enforcement now more than ever because we've got a shortage in many areas. So, you know, the idea that maybe there's an independent security force for DCFS, uh, I think was brought about because of the fact that there just aren't the resources to go to these home visits and go to these investigations by our police. And it's not, it's not their fault. They just don't have enough uh, people working to do that. And obviously they've got to deal with every other situation that's happening, whether it's a domestic disturbance call or, um, or whatever. So, you know, Senator Hunter's bill is addressing the fact that there is a need for additional security here. And I think that, um, you know, I think it would be a good thing for DCFS to have additional security there uh, because you know what? We've now, we've now seen another, the death of another DCFS employee, as we pointed out. And uh, I've also been hearing, by the way, about former employees that were working where we had dangerous people visit them in their offices as well. And I, me personally, I was, I was, uh, when I was a prosecutor as the head of the juvenile division in Sangamon County, uh, I was going to my house where I was confronted, uh, my apartment downtown. I was confronted by a person whose kids we took away from him for their safety. And, uh, so the danger is everywhere. So to have, have, cause these, these employees also, by the way, don't get to, you know, leave their employment at work when they show up on the streets, they can run into the same people that, um, that, you know, who they have, uh, had issues with because they took their kids or whatever. So, you know, a private security force as part of DCFS, I think would make sense to protect those people. Yeah. These bills in some ways kind of make it sound like there's very little current protection for DCFS employees in the field right now. Do you kind of feel the same way on that? Yes, the way it was described to me was um, you show up, you're an investigator, you, they open the door, uh, it's a, you know it's a potentially violent home, and you show up and they've got a knife. And what does a DCFS employee have? They have a pen and a, and a clipboard. And, you know, you look at Deidre's situation, Thayer is a rural part of, you know, a rural part of my district. And as I said, it, it takes a long time for police to get there sometimes, and there just aren't the resources. So... They need to have something. They need to have some protection. And the fact that, you know, people that are convicted of murder can carry mace. Uh, you know, anybody who visits anyone's home in this state, if they're 18 or over, can carry mace with them legally. Uh, you know, whether you're going to watch children, whether you're going to do a, a repair job in someone's home, murderers can carry it around, convicted murderers can't. But a DCFS investigator who's going to a house that could potentially be violent or dangerous to try to protect kids, they are not allowed to carry anything with them for self-defense. That, I think that the average person when they hear that, and I, I'm, I'm certainly consider myself the average person, when I heard that, I was shocked. That is just, uh, you know, and if my family member was a member of, of the DCFS team, my goodness, I would want them to have something to protect, to protect themselves. And so uh, I think that's why you're seeing so much bipartisan support in the state center for this bill. And I hope that we can pass it and it gets the same level of bipartisan support in the House. What about stronger punishments for those who harm a DCFS worker? Some members in your party have proposed bringing back the death penalty for someone who, who kills a DCFS worker. Would this really help? 
Well, in the situation for long-term issues, I think that it would help because, you know, it's not just DCFS employees that get murdered. There's also employees that have been battered on the job. And when you go to a house and you're, you're trying to protect yourself, it's, it can be difficult. And if, and if quite frankly, if one of the parents uh, who's abusive decides that they don't care if they get charged with a misdemeanor and so they go ahead and, you know, do some damage to a human being, a person who's got their own family, who's got their own situation, people that care about them, someone who attacks that person because it's just a misdemeanor is an occurrence that happens all the time, quite frankly. And I've noticed, and I know there's anecdotal evidence and there's also studies that show that when you do enhance penalties, it does have a deterrent effect. Now, how many people that would dissuade from attacking a DCFS employee? I'm not sure, but I can tell you this. There are people that have told me that they didn't do, they didn't attack police officers because they knew that if they were to attack a police officer, um, there would be extra penalties for them. It would be, it would be bad. You know, there's a reason why people hesitate to attack, you know, a, a police officer versus a, a civilian. Uh, and one of those reasons is because they know if they attack a police officer, there's a harsher penalty. I think given DCF, giving DCFS workers that same protection, um, I think would, would certainly deter some, some folks from attacking them. And I, there's no question about that. Now, how many, I don't know, but it would be, a, it would be helpful to have that. Senator Doris Turner, a Springfield Democrat, also has a bill you're a co-sponsor on that would cover DCFS employees the same way police officers are covered in the eyes of the law if, one of, if a DCFS employee was to be attacked. Tell me a little bit about how this would work. Yeah, so the issue here was Deidre's, and I'm going back to my constituent, because Deidre, you know, the catalyst for me to get involved here um, on this bill, on, on my bill and on the bill that you're referring to, because I'm a co-sponsor of it, was Deidre, Deidre and her family. And the issue with Deidre was that her, she's got two young kids and um, a husband, and they're all like having issues with um, trying to get these benefits. And that's true of other employees if they would be in the same situation. So this corrects that. You know, you've got someone who is murdered doing their job and, and doing their, um, their employment through no fault of their own, was brutally murdered. And so to shut out her family from their benefits just because she was murdered um, is really, really, really outrageous. And I think everybody agrees with that. So this would allow for folks that are in similar situations um, to still get their health care benefits, et cetera, uh, you know, and get, get, get something similar to what um, other, you know, other employment opportunities have throughout the state because they put their lives on the line for these kids and for these families to protect them. And so these DCFS workers, if they get murdered or die in the line of duty, they deserve to be protected just like everybody else who's out there trying to, you know, make the, make the world safer and make and, and protect kids and, and, and the most vulnerable people in our state. They're trying to protect them. So they should not be penalized for getting murdered and their family should not get penalized for getting murdered. And that's essentially what's happening with current law. And this bill corrects that. And so I'm proud to be a co-sponsor of it. And, and these people would, uh, would get their benefits because it, it, it goes retroactively into the past as well. So um, it's a good bill. And uh, these, these folks through, through no fault of their own who have a, a parent killed, for example, should not 
stopped receiving their health care benefits and things, you know, because of that. And so this corrects that. And I think it's got also very broad bipartisan support. And I hope that this can um, pass the House as well. Senator Steve McClure, thank you so much for coming on the Cloutcast and updating us on the legislative efforts to keep DCFS employees safe. Thanks for covering the story, Ben. It's, it's been a good conversation. The day after I spoke with Senator McClure, his bill, SB 1486, allowing DCFS workers to carry pepper spray, unanimously passed the Senate. It now awaits committee and floor votes in the House. Senator Hunter's bill, Senate Bill 3732, creating a DCFS security force, is still awaiting a Senate vote before a March 11th deadline to move the bill. Senator Doris Turner's bill, SB 3070, will not come up for a vote in the Senate this year, however. It was moved back to the Rules Committee after not meeting the February 25th Senate deadline. This episode of the Cloudcast was produced by me, Ben Zielinski, and edited by Alex Nicken. We'll be back with a new episode in two weeks.